Mr. Miyamoto. Miyamoto just does one of these, just nods. Howard looks back at me. And we, I'm looking at Mike here thinking, are we been gonna be sued here? Because we've broken into their hardware. Our guest today is responsible for British software house software creations formed way back in the mid 80s. From the outside looking in, it appeared that they were defying all odds by winning some of the biggest arcade licenses of the era from Japanese arcade manufacturers and giving us some terrific ports for our micros. And it wasn't long before they were kicking down Nintendo's door to get in on the console action. Here to tell us the inside story is founder Richard Kay. Welcome, Richard. Hello there. Hi there, Richard. Richard, set the scene for us, if you will. What part of the world did you grow up in and were you surrounded by influences that might have hinted at a future in the video games industry for you? Um, I was. Uh, I grew up in uh, good old sunny uh, Manchester and uh -huh. uh, I think the main influence for me for the game side was it rained all the time, so I had to stay indoors and do something. So that really, <laughs> I mean, I was always a bit of a loner anyway, so I enjoyed the the sort of late 70s, the old Atari VCS systems from 76, 77, 78. And it always fascinated me how, you know, the interaction between what you were doing and what was on the screen. So I knew very early on that I had a very, one of the things that was a keen interest to me was games, how were they put together, you know, this magical sort of thing that you were looking at on the screen. So that really was my main influence. There wasn't any certain person, obviously the old Space Invaders and stuff like that, but the Atari VCS, I think it preceded that anyway. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, how much the great British weather fueled the uh, the British micro industry? Um, well, I've, so I've been asked a question, I've been asked a question many times, actually, you know, why, why does the man, you know, why does the UK in particular, the Northwest have so many great, uh, you know, game developers? Well, if you're in California, and it's sunny, you're gonna to go to the beach. Whereas in Manchester, you you know, and it's raining, you're not going to go to Blackpool. So I think a lot of people were stuck inside and you've got a lot of creative people, you know, sort of Liverpool with a music scene and indeed Manchester with a music scene. It seems to be a very creative part of the world. If that's down to the weather, I don't know, but I can't think of any other reason. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the Atari VCS or 2600 there. Was that a machine that you had? Was that your first machine or did you have something different? First machine I had, you may remember them. I can't remember the name of them. And it was it was literally just a a bulk machine. It had paddles on it, and it was just a pong game. And you had okay. I think three or four different versions. You could set it to easy, um, medium, or difficult, and that was the, the depth of the gameplay. Um, so that was the first thing. And then I got the Atari VCS, where you had the you know the planes that used to fly around the the, uh, the clouds. Uh, so that was the first real console that I had um, back in the late seventies, and then it all died away, didn't it? Yeah, so real first-generation stuff then. Mm. Um, I mean, there were so many Pong clones, we could spend all day trying to guess which one that was. But uh, yeah, I know the machines you mean. And what about local arcades in your town? Were there any that you frequented? Were you into that? Yeah, there were, actually. I mean, I, I, um, I mean we'll, we'll go forward to my ocean days um, soon anyway. But when I was at college, in fact, my first time I started to really realise that I wanted to get into games when I went to college. And they had, I can't remember the game, it actually looked like a meat pie with an alien in the middle of it. You may remember you had to shoot the way through and there was an alien sitting in the middle, but it, it looked like a big meat pie, you know, it looked like a pie from Wigan. Um, and I used to, whilst everybody else was, you know, trying to go off with this girl and that girl, I was just playing that game. I spent all day in the common room playing that game. Um, so I, I, I knew I needed to do something. I didn't know what 
what I was going to do with, with, with games, but I knew that's where I wanted to go. In fact, I failed my A-levels miserably because I was just playing that game all the time. And, and that is true. I'm sure someone watching can tell us what the meat pie game was. So please leave a comment if you know what that was. And I was going to come on to education for, for international viewers. Here in the UK, we can actually leave school at 16 if we choose to. But you've, you've mentioned college. So you obviously went on to further education. What, what were you studying, yeah. Richard? Uh, well, in fact, this is what got me into computers. This is where the first, when I first started to um, go into I was doing a very strange mix. History, art and maths. Okay. Um, very strange indeed. The art side actually makes sense, but the history, no idea. I think it was just something that I ticked very quickly at the end of my GCSEs. Uh, and the maths, I was always interested in maths, although I did find the transition from the O-level to A-level was just, it was horrendous. So I spent most of my time in my A-level maths class sticking pencils in my ears and up my nose and doing <laughs> alien impressions. Um, in fact, it was, in fact, it was maths with probability. And I think they, the teacher asked me a question about probability, and I said, well, the probability of passing this exam is zero, <laughs> at which point I was sent out of the class. So I had to drop the A-level maths, and I had to take up two other A-levels. So I thought, I'll take maths again. I'll do maths just to go over it. And the other subject, but guess what it was? Computers. Oh, okay. So that was an option so, then. Yeah. yeah, it was an option. And in fact, it was the, I think they were called RMZ80 machines that were great big massive black box machines which had a, a green screen uh, and, and that they were they were great fun it was so you know I was actually it was a, um, a labor of love really and uh, but I ended up taking over the computer class I remember it was a we had a an Australian teacher called Mr. Riemann um, he didn't know his bites from his bits to be honest and um, so he was doing this sort routine and I just put my hand up and said, that is wrong. It doesn't work. And he said, well, I've been doing it this way for two years since I've been doing this course. I said, well, it's wrong. So he, up to the blackboard, I, I strode and I, I rewrote the thing. He ended up for the rest of the, for the year, year and a half, sitting in a corner, reading a paper, drinking coffee. And I took the class <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? I've, you know, I just... I didn't even pass my A-levels. I had this computing. And in those days, there weren't really many jobs in computing. There were a few courses at Manchester University. And um, there was this company called, um, it wasn't Ocean Software in those days. It was um, Spectrum Games. And they okay. were they were advertising for a warehouse operative, packer, gopher, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Can you remember where you saw that advert? Was that in the local paper or where did you see that? It was in the Manchester Weekly News. Okay, okay. So just for context, what year was this then that you got the job at Ocean? Um, I can tell you exactly which year that was. That was 1983. That was the okay. summer of 83. Mm -hmm. um, so summer of 83, left college, joined what was then Spectrum Games, soon to be Ocean Software. And it really was, there were a handful of people in there. There was Paul Owens, who's known for the Kong and Caterpillar. Uh, David Selwood, he was there. Um so there were a handful of programmers, and, and uh, Paul Owens was the, the main one. He was like, oh, God, you know, we looked up to him. So I th and the reason why I joined that, well, I thought, well, if I'm going to join a company, it may as well be a company that I'm interested in in the subject matter. Um, so I was packing all of the, you know, I was packing up the, the, the tapes that were in tapes, and there were blocks of 100, and I was packing those up and also driving to Telford. I think that's where they got everything mastered. Um, that's where the duplication was. So I used to go down there to Telford pick up the tapes, bring them back, box them up to go to where they were distributing them to. And um, 
So it was interesting. I used to hang around, spend far much, too much time in the programmer's room looking at what they were doing. And it was, so that was my first foray into how it actually was put, how things were put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saved up for a BBC Micro um, with the wages I was earning. It took me quite, I was only on probably 60 quid a week. Um, but when you're at college and you're suddenly on 60 pound a week, it's a lot of money. Um, and I taught myself how to program on the BBC Micro. There was a friend of mine that I'd met through going into computer stores, being the proper nerd that I am, called Kevin Edwards, who Kevin's very well known. Um, and he was you know, very heavy into the BBC Micro. And he showed me around how it, things worked and introduced me to assembly language. So I taught myself how to program at night. And I wrote a game called Mr. Wimpy to my horror and my shame which can still be found online um and uh i still play in fact kevin posted on this and he said oh do you remember this or i remember it very well so i wrote the game at home walked in one morning went up to john woods dragged in my, my bbc micro put this fully finished game on i said well there you go and they switched me from being in the warehouse to writing games problem was they always classed me as a box packer warehouse operative and never changed my salary. My salary didn't really change for about 18 months. But you know what? I, I loved what I was doing. I was young, yeah. naive. Yeah. Um, and I remember actually on the launch of Mr. Wimpy, I, was, I drove up with uh, John Woods and I got on very well. Um, and um, we were driving up to, and this was kind of a key moment. We were driving up to Wimpy in London to launch the Wimpy products. It was on the B Micro the Commodore 64, which David Selwood wrote, and I think the version on the Specky was done by Paul Owens. And halfway up on the motorway, you know, going, going up to the, the capital, um, John Wood said to me, you will never have the opportunity like we've got. Very strange thing to say. Whether he saw that I had the potential and was trying to put doubts in my head, I don't know. And that rang in my ears for a long time. So anyway, so I, you know, was at Ocean for two years, working very late hours. It was a labour of love. Um, you know, we had um, by the time I left, which was September two thousand and fifteen. You know, we had the we'd moved downstairs to the basement, uh, and there's plenty of documentation on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there must have been a team of twenty or thirty people. The old school was still there. Um, we had uh, Martin Galway. Um, Joffa Smith. I mean, I interviewed Joffa. You all know Joffa. Uh, God rest his soul. Um, I worked with Joffa very closely, and he was an absolute genius, fantastic artist, great musician, superb programmer. Um, and we had a great laugh. I mean, it was. It's only when you look back now you think they were. At, it's not because you know I'm sugarcoating how things were then. Were they as good as they were? No, they really were. They really were the best. And everything we did, everything we did was. Um, not entrepreneur, it was all pioneering. And I remember um, Tony Pomfret, he was in the next room to me. You'd often hear a yelp from his room. Like, I don't know what was going on, but you'd walk into his room, he'd just come up with this new technique. Or Mike Webb would walk in, and Mike Webb was, you know, genius, was genius then, genius now, uh, who then became a partner later on in, in business. And, we, you know, we'd often come up with these new routines, which nobody had seen before. Um, because there were no books, there was no internet. I think the, the shelf in, I can't remember which bookstore it was in Manchester, the computer shelf was probably no bigger than what's behind me. And it, had a, and it was all university books. It was all high-end graphics type stuff. So there was nothing. You couldn't go on the internet. You couldn't go on to GitHub and search for a, a project or a solution. Everything you did was pioneering. And it felt great. 
It's nice to hear you speak so fondly of it. You know, we hear so many stories of people having to work crazy hours and, and, and just being ground down in these old software houses. So it's nice to hear you speak so fondly of it. No doubt you had to put the work in and you had to put a lot of long hours in, but clearly you were enjoying oh, you had to put it. Very, well, the, well, as you know, in the games industry, Christmas is always looming. And, um, you know, if, if Ocean had put, you know, a, a marketing budget for a game, which is coming out on Christmas, um, you couldn't miss it. You had to do. You, you, ha- you had to do the hours. Um, there was no getting away from that. So deadlines have been pretty much part of my life then, and they are now. Um, so, you know, but they were enjoyable times. It was enjoyable. Can you remember? You know, when your games were first published, did you did you ever take yourself down to the local shop to see it on the shelf, or were you a bit? Oh, well, many more times I bought that, a few yeah. copies as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you, you know, I'd often put the game on and say, "Oh, can I have a look at this game," and my name would appear. Then you'd get a crowd of people around you, and then autographs. It, it really was. It was. It was fantastic. And of course, Manchester at that time, you had the Hacienda, so it was a very buzzy place at that that time. So you really did feel like a pop star. Um, and there weren't many people, you know, in that industry. And, you know, back then people said, when are you going to get a proper job? That was all you ever heard. <laughs> well, we were making enough money for Ocean. It was it was certainly a proper job to them. But there were, there were wonderful times. And, you know, people would come in off the street and say, well, I've written this demo and you'd get a job. There was no need to, you know, and you were the programmer, you were the musician, you were the designer, you did everything. You did the code, the music, the animation, you did the whole thing um, from start to finish, even the testing. Even the duplicating at times you had to do, you had to do the master. Um, so you really felt in control. Great days, absolutely great days. And did they did they move you on from the warehouse wage? Did they start to give you some royalties or, or reward you sufficiently? No. No, hence the next, <laughs> hence the next move into my next career. Yes. Um, I thought, yeah. well, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm now, I've now turned, I was, you know, I was 20. I was turning 21 that year, 1985. I thought I've been doing this for long enough. I've now got to start thinking about, you know, my future. I've always been missed. I've always been known as Mr. Sensible. You know, if my friends were up to no good. I would be always one that walked the other way. It's just the way I've been. I would always think about the consequences. So I thought about, well, if I stay here another three years, I need to start getting some money behind me. Um, this labour of love will last for a long time, but it won't buy a house and it certainly won't get you a car and it certainly won't get you a future. Um, so I started looking at my other option, which was flying. Um, and bearing in mind in those days, there weren't many people, um, weren't many software developers um, at all, never mind game developers. So I walked into, I can't remember where the the, um, the Air Force Korea station was, but it was in Manchester somewhere. I just walked past one day. I thought, well, I'll go in, see what my options are, and um, signed up for nine years and, and uh, signed up as a techie, actually, but I wanted to fly. They said, because you, you don't have physics O-level, you have to, you're going to have to, you know, you'll sign up as a, you're good enough to fly. Your tests have proven that. Um, I'd saved up quite a lot of money, believe it or not. Um, I mean, £7,000 in those days was a lot of money, wow. and that was just yeah. with a very basic salary. Um, I think my wage had gone up to, I don't know, £100 a week, but, you know, over three years it starts to sign. I was doing other bits of work on the side as well, which Ocean didn't know about. They do now. Um <laughs> But uh, so that's how I made money. I was doing additional projects on the side. I was doing some, I think I did a um, sort of an art package on the Beeb, made a thousand pound there or what it was, whatever it was. So I'd saved, so they were impressed by the fact I'd saved money at the age of 20. And, you know, some software, they wanted me to be a navigator because it's systems based. Right. Um, okay. I didn't care as long as I was in a plane. So I pursued that and I joined up in 
I remember the exact date when I signed, November the 25th, 1985. Got on the train November 26th, 1985. And I absolutely loved it. I'd met the, 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 the woman who's now my wife. I'd actually met her. Um, I'd signed up in no, I signed the documentation in September. And okay. I met her at the end of September. I didn't bother telling her. I was about to leave for nine years um, <laughs> until a friend of mine told her. That was an interesting conversation. So off I trotted to Swinderby in uh, Lincolnshire. And again, fantastic times. You know, if you, it's the only time I've ever fallen asleep standing up. It really is as bad as you see in the trade. You're, you're mentally and physically exhausted. But some fantastic memories. Um, so anyway, it got to end of December 85 and I realised... I'd chosen the wrong career path. I really, and everyone, in fact, I'd just written Hypersports. That was my last game. Oh, yes. And it'd gone to number one in the BBC charts. Everyone knew my background, where I was training, and they were all bringing in copies of it, and I was signing it. They asked me to sign copies of Mr. Uh, of Hypersports on the Beeb. And when enough people say to you, why are you in here doing this? Why aren't you air crew? You start to think, well, maybe. And I went, I, I decided to leave. Um, and... Uh, they sent me up to the squadron leader and he said, why are you leaving? I said, well, I've made the wrong choice. Uh, he then got in touch with the the, um, the recruitment and said, well, we've got somebody here who we don't want to let go. But they said you'd have to work two years in the Air Force before right. they could send you to Biggin Hill. Well, two, I thought to myself, well, it's not a, I'm not, it's not a God-given right. You'd have to go through the full selection. Um, and two years out of the games industry is like, at that time, was like 10 years in any other industry. Yeah. And I said to him, you give me the place now, send me up to Swinderby now, uh, sorry, to Biggin Hill now. If I'm good enough, great, you'll have two years out of me and I'll you know, go through the selection again. If not, I'm going to have to leave. And um, so I left January the 7th, 1986. Um, I then thought, well, I'll go back. A lot When people found out I'd left, I was getting calls from um, lots of different companies uh, asking me to write games. Because if you'd worked at Ocean, it was like your passport. Because they were the biggest. They were yeah. the, not only the biggest in the UK, as you know, they were biggest in Europe. And uh, I started doing a lot of work for different companies, freelance, electronic arts, uh, and several other companies. Um, in fact, one of the games I wrote was Mermaid Madness. If you find it, that was for EA. It's a big mermaid with big wobbly breasts. <laughs> I've not come across did. that one. And funnily yeah. enough... It's um, actually quite a good Funnily enough, just last week I, I interviewed uh, Trip Hawkins, but he, he didn't mention that game. <laughs> no, but it's, it's called Mermaid Mass. It's a great little game, actually. It'd make a good mobile game. It's great fun. You had to rescue this diver by collecting pearls and getting oxygen underneath because obviously the mermaid can only last underwater for a certain time. And I fully designed that. It was a good little game. That was the first game I wrote after leaving. So you've obviously, you've been in and out of the Air Force. You've made a name for yourself already. So people know who you are and you, you've got this freelance work going. So um, why did you decide to kind of formalise that by creating your own company and not just working as a, a job in freelancer? Why did you take that step? Um, I think it's because of my family background as well. My father had always worked for himself, um, you know, so and the whole family are all quite entrepreneurial. So it was always, I always knew at some point I was going to do, whether it be after the Air Force, um, I was going to be doing something on my own because I'm quite independent and I like to make decisions without having to speak to one. Because you know what it's like, you get an idea in your head, you just want to run with it. I don't want someone to tell me why it won't work. Let me prove that. Um, in those days I could do it, didn't have a, you know, I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married. It's easy to do that then. Now it's a lot more difficult, especially with the cost again. So, um, what happened was I was working freelance 
the phone kept going. I was turning work down. I thought this is, you know, this is daft. I could be tripling what I'm earning, but I haven't got the man hours. Nor, to be honest with you, nor the skills. Are a lot, you know, one of the, one of my um, skills is knowing my weaknesses. There are a lot better people out there. Yes, I'm good enough to to write good games, and there are people who are better. I, you know, there always is. Um, but recognizing that weakness is a strength, I believe. Um, so I realized I could do more work and I put an advert in the, I went on Piccadilly radio, they interviewed me cause I wanted to put more, you know, bring more people on board. I was working from a bedroom at the time, you know, it was many a pizza and TV off to the left. Um, and, uh, I put an advert in the Manchester Evening News and a chap called Stephen Ruddy, who's very well known. Um, I was very fortunate that the first person that responded to the advert was Stephen Ruddy, who's known for his bubble-bubble conversions, and he's now working for uh, Yippie Entertainment, who I think have been taken over now. Uh, and Steve was just a joy to work with from day one. Um, as long as you supplied him with copious amounts of, of wig and pies, he was happy. Um, <laughs> so is it just one person you were pie. looking for, or are you just going to see how yeah. many responded? And well, I was just looking for one. Yeah. yeah, and he travelled up every day initially and worked from my bedroom. Um, bit of an odd arrangement, but you know that's how it happened. And, and the work started to roll in. He wrote. He had a game he'd half written called the Big KO on the BBC Micro. It came out. Firebird Software um, published it. So that was his first game because he came along to the interview. So look, I've got this game. Um, can I have a job? And I said yes. And we we're all being paid peanuts at the time, um, but he was happy with his pies and his and his job. So he he worked for me at home. Uh, for a while, I think sometimes he worked from his house because it was easy for him. You know, getting the train up from Wigan every day was a bit of a bind. But so what happened then? My uh, my father-in-law or future father-in-law said to me, "Look, you need to get some offices in town or somewhere. You know, you need that mental break from where you are, and also you need to feel like you're going to work." And that's when I formalised it because it was still, um, you know, it was just software creations. It was just a private company; it wasn't limited. So I formalised that, I, I registered the company, I found an office in town uh, opposite the BBC, um, in fact it was next to BSM, above a computer shop, I think it's now a spa or something, um, and I rented a, a little office with no windows, like a prison cell, my phone, was, there was no windows, the phone was in a drawer, and we had three or four desks, uh, and I took on, well, obviously Steve came in, uh, then we took on another guy called Mike Ager, um who big big shout out to him as well because you know he was one of the first that i took on uh then craig mitchell who joined me for a while then left and then came back so it just grew and grew and grew and then i took more offices so we expanded that from one office to two offices to three to four did a lot of work for firebird software an awful lot a guy called colin fuage uh, i don't know whether you know colin i don't know but yeah, firebird so... the, the the arm software arm of british telecom at the time right. wasn't it yeah. yeah yeah so i did lots of traveling up and down to um up and down to london getting more contracts um just just sticking with the formation of software creations for a little bit software creations was that the the, the first and only name that you come up with or, or could it have been called something else were there any other names in the pipeline oh yeah there were some actually there were some other ones because we were doing a lot of arcade conversions bubble bubble being the first of them mm. um because my initials are rk we thought well should we have it arcade oh okay so yeah. which was a bit of a play on names and i thought well ones if we don't that would then tie us to just doing arcade games um 
And then we, I, I came up with software cretins, which I thought was kind of a, <laughs> which I didn't think would go down too well. And then there were software creatures. And then I just came up with software creations because that's what we were doing. It was creating software, software creations, easy to remember. And that's where the name came. It, we, you know, I came with that name pretty quick. Um, there was arcade, software creatures, cretins, creations. Um, we had to play around with it. And the SC looked quite good as well. So um, that that was the name. And, and we, by the... So sort of eight, by the time we got to that, we did a lot of work for Taito as well. They were a big one. Um, did a lot of conversions for them. Did loads of work for Firebird. Um, but we weren't getting paid a huge amount of money. I and mean, I think for Bubble Bobble on all versions that we did, it was about £20,000, which seems like a lot. But when you divide that up, to, you know, sort of four, well, it was about four teams. We had the Atari, we had the Commodore 64, Beat Micro, spectrum all the usual ones that's not a lot of money you're looking at four or five k per version um it's not a lot um mm. but we were you know we we're all getting paid peanuts so there was still a profit yeah i yeah. think and that year we made a profit of 20k over all the projects yeah now you mentioned bubble bubble a couple of times there and you also had uh, games like bionic commando and a lot yeah. of people would like to know i'm sure how did you manage to get these licenses because there must have been a lot of competition to win these licenses especially from big companies like mm. ocean who would have had money to throw around so how did you manage to get hold of them well firebird had the licenses or the licenses for um bubble bobble i went to see them met with colin and colin said to me look nobody no one will touch this uh, conversion with a barge pole they say it can't be done it's not possible i mean that's red rag to a ball so i brought back a um a board we had the arcade board i showed it to steve and we had mike Follin as well you know mike Follin. he did set the first game he did for me was sentinel on the specky another thing that they said couldn't be done so we'd already done the sentinel uh you know with mike Follin's genius he managed to do that so we'd done the sentinel we proved to them once before that you know it can be done obviously there's compromises showed it to steve ruddy who rubbed his hands together supplied with pies <laughs> off he went and we, we just did a quick demo with um just these squares lots of squares using the 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 you know the, the vertical raster interrupt he managed to place more than eight sprites on the screen at one time and i went back to them and i said look here, here's the 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 proof of concept in terms of the mechanics and they gave us the contract um so we got bubble bobble and then Obviously, people saw that. It got all sorts of accolades and awards. And because of that, people started phoning up the likes of US Gold, um, LED Storm, Bionic Commandos. We started getting a lot of work. Taito had seen it. So we, we got a lot of the Taito work. Uh, I think we did a game called Puznik. It was a puzzle game. But we got lots of lots of conversions from them, uh, Commodore 64 conversions. Um, and that's really... We were known for our conversions initially. Um so we were doing lots of that, and I, 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 you know, I don't know whether you want to get onto how did we I get into the NES. We will do, we will do, yeah. Um, so you, a lot of emphasis then really on Bubble Bobble, um, you know, everything really growing out of that. That's a very important game for the company. That was, that was key to us. You know, and it's one of those things that was a defining moment, really. Yeah. Um, the fact they said it couldn't be done, and we went off and proved it, and then we delivered. I mean, the Commodore 64 one is still talked about now. Um, it's still technical genius by steve i mean i doff my hat to the man um he used to be able to push that machine and then we had the music by tim follin and who you know we and, and in those days we i used to get tapes sent in from budding potential computer uh, musicians and they'd send in this these tapes with beat bop and plink plonk 
and it's like and and Tim came at it from a very different angle, um, in that he said, "No, this is an this is an instrument. Let me make it sound like an instrument, not like a computer." And uh, so we had, you know, the audio side. We had, you know, we had the animation side. Um, we really pushed every aspect of the game. We didn't want it. We didn't want a computer game to look like a, a typical computer. We wanted to try and make it a piece of art and push the hardware as far as we could and, and squeeze everything out of it. So we were known for that. So any arcade game that looked like it wasn't possible, we we made it possible, um, and we we never we never took no for an answer. Now there were always compromises, of course. Yeah, Tim. Uh, I mean, even on a ZX Spectrum with its single beeper, Tim did some amazing things with the music. I've, I've had uh, the pleasure of interviewing him, and he's a lovely, lovely chap. Um, oh, he's yeah. a great guy. Um, yeah, very good. Well, I've not spoken to him for years, and he's gone off to do filmmaking or whatever he's done. Um, he, he's disappeared off the face of the planet. But uh, very, very, very. I mean, very. I mean, the, the thing is, we had the thing about people like Tim and Steve and the Mike Webbs of this world that they are very very technical and very good at what they do we had great artists who were also technicians so they understood the hardware they weren't just artists they were mm. they, they could write games as well so um steve really wrote the music system for the commodore 64 for tim to enable him to do that and tim knew how the the specy worked, so he would say to steve can we do this can we make it do that and because steve was so technically um, above everyone else, he he managed to do that. So it was just one of these weird things. That, it's like a great football team, you know. You look yeah. at some of the foot. Everyone in the Premier League, every team, they're all fantastic footballers. Why does one team do better than the other? They've got you know they've got a team of squad of twenty odd. They've got great managers. They've all got the same pitch. They've all got great. Well, what makes the difference? And it's just you sometimes can't put your finger on it. But you know you look at it's just certain players in a team. You know, I'm a City fan, unfortunately, for any other viewers out there. But, you know, at the time at the time you had Aguero and people like that, and if you hadn't scored that goal, would they have gone on to do what they're doing? So certain things happen. You know, the Aguero goal, our equivalent was Bubble Bobble. You know, the great, the, the Aguero was Steve Ruddy and, and, and the great manager was, you know, maybe it was me, I don't know. Um, and the other reason as well, why did it work? People said, why did yours survive when there were many other companies out there? Why did yours survive and others didn't? And I'll tell you the reason why. When I worked at Ocean Software and I got absolutely drenched on the way from, you know, Victoria train station to the office and you see John Woods turning up in his in his Merc, I know how that feels. He has every right to have the Merc. He's taking the risks. He, you know, he's running the company. It still hurts when you're there at one o'clock in the morning. You know, you've got to traipse out and get a taxi in the, in the, in the nice Manchester weather. So I understood how programmers worked. I understood how, you know, I know, I know how they think. In fact, I got to one point where the team said, Rick, you need to buy yourself a car. Okay. You no, know, because it was having the opposite effect. Are we in trouble? Why can you not buy a car because we're in trouble? He said, Rick, you deserve it. Buy yourself a car. And so I was always aware, very conscious of, you know, what they were thinking, what I was doing. I never, I wasn't flashy. I didn't want to be flashy because, you know, yes, you're taking the risks. Yes, you're you're reaping the rewards because you are taking the risk. My house, you know, your, your, your house is on the line. Your family's on the line. Whereas, you know, people working for you, they go, thank you very much, Rick. That was a lovely exercise. I'm off to ocean now. So, you know, um, I used to say to people, the door's always open. You know, you're not tied to me. If you want to take that risk, it's entirely up to you. So I understood how programmers worked. And I, I actually was one of the first, you know, I started to think, well, how do I get people to really buy into what they're doing? How do I give them ownership? And I started giving um, royalties 
10% share of any profits we made from that game are yours, less costs. And I was going to be very open with the costs and show them what the breakdown was. There was nothing hidden. They could, you know, they could contact the, the accountants if they wanted to, check the books. You know, so, you know, if you were working for ICI and you were on, say, 20 grand a year, you couldn't turn around to the CEO of ICI and say, you just made 30 million pound. I want some of that. Well, you, you, you know, there's a limit. And I was, I got to that point, I used to hide. I would never tell anybody what we're making. I used to get really nervous and it became very secretive and it created the opposite effect. So in the end, I said, right, this is what we're getting for this game. It's 10,000, 20,000, the royalties $1.50. And I will show you the statements from the likes of, you know, Taito or whoever it was. I will show you the statements when they come in. And they all came in by post in those days or by fax. I'm going to show you what the deal is. If you want to negotiate a deal with me based on what you're putting in, let's talk about it. And the likes of, because I couldn't compete with the wages of the likes of Ocean, no, and the EAs. No. I couldn't, there's no way, you know, you're a publisher, you're making the, the, the majority of the profit. So that was the way I got people to buy in. And, um, you know, some people did very well out of it. Again, with any bonus scheme like that, it's got its downsides because what do you do with the people who are doing the tools, the tool designers who are working across several projects? Then you've got the people on the project saying, why should I give them my share? It is a nightmare. Bonus system, a nightmare. They work for some, it's a bit like running a government. You know, you're half the people are happy with it. Well, you know, let's, not get into, let's not get into politics. It will go downhill well, quickly. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're swiftly moving on from politics or religion. Those we need to bring up. You had the team and, and that team, whatever it was, you know, the mystery ingredient was certainly there. And that's a great way of attracting the talent as well to offer that 10%. I can't imagine an ocean, a software house like that, offering a, a 10% royalty to all their programmers. So um, well, I they did in that. the end, but they hated me for it. Yeah, because obviously now, you know, because they're people now saying, well, they're doing that. Why can't we? Um, whether it's because of me, I don't know. But I know I was certainly in the UK the first to offer an incentive scheme. And now every company does it. Whether it's because of me, I don't know. Who knows? Mm. Um, but our son, was the first to do it. And uh, it was a bit of a risk, but we had people working bank holidays. And, you know, uh, we had people, we had a baseball game that we're doing for Nintendo. And I had to kick people out on Boxing Day. That's what happened because people are now incentivized. Yes, they have ownership yeah. of what they're doing. They're not just making me, you know, fatter and richer. They make they can share in this. We interrupt this program for an important message. Did you know that you can enjoy even more retro tea breaks with the official retro tea breaks book from rmcretro.store? It's a beautifully bound collection of interviews from the pioneers of game development, transcribed and expanded upon in more detail with our guests' help. Extras include release timelines, pixel art by sensible software Stu Cambridge, and full-colour photos from our guests' lives in gaming. Pick one up now at rmcretro.store. Um, as we as we come into the late 80s and the 90s now, we'll come on to the Nintendo NES now or the NES um, and these techni technical abilities of your team really come into their own here. I mean, uh, the way that you got into to writing games for the NES is really interesting, but had you gathered some influence in the Japanese market from the conversions that you'd done? Um, no, no, how I got into the consoles is if you rewind back to the Atari VCS, the late, so, so the late seventies, and I often make decisions based on what I want. So I, I was sick and tired of loading up. You know, everyone was writing these fast 
you know, Commodore 60 tape loaders and Spectrum loaders, and you'd get 35 or 25 minutes the way through after watching this psychedelic, you know, remember how it used to load on the, and, the, you know, people put these colourful loading screens, and all of a sudden it'd just go grey. You just wasted 25 minutes of your life trying to get the game to load, uh, and you'd be cleaning the heads and off you go again. So I thought, surely there must, you know, why can't, isn't, is there a plug and play system like there was in the late seventies? Someone somewhere on this planet must be doing it. And it just happened. It was just, again, one of those really freaky timings, um, sort of witching moment. I went up, I was go up to, went up to Firebird, uh, had a meeting with Colin Fuge and he opened, he opened this drawer and said, Oh, Richard, do you want to have a look at this? And in his drawer, I remember it was gray and red and it had Famicom written on the top of it, which stood for family computer. There was no NES at those days. No, no one had ever even heard of it. No one outside of Japan had really heard of Nintendo. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's the Famicom. It's the next big thing from Japan. And it's a closed system, and it's from Japan. And he showed me some of the games, you know, the typical japanese type games. I couldn't wait to get out of his office. And, <laughs> I, you know, got back on the train because I, I didn't say anything. I didn't react. Got home. And bearing in mind... Didn't have printers in those days. I had a fax machine. We didn't really, in those days, you didn't have, I think you might, I think it might have been the time when the Amstrad came out and you may have had very basic word processors. So I offer trotted to um, the Manchester Chamber of Commerce, got, went, went through all the, the Japanese books that they had there and found Nintendo. So I thought, well, how on earth do I, you know, it's a closed system. It didn't have a keyboard on it. It's proprietary hardware. How am I going to get involved in this? So after digging around and sending the odd, you know, handwritten fax, I've still got it somewhere. I wonder if I've still got it. And I've got it filed away. And wrote a fax to Nintendo. Of course, didn't get a response. So then I did more digging and found who the chairman was, which was a chap called Howard Lincoln. Um, did a bit of research on the family of Nintendo. I think it was uh, Minoru Arakawa was the son-in-law of the owner of Nintendo, and he was heading up the um, the Nintendo side. So I got the number and phoned them and spoke to, remember, it was a woman called Kelly Toft. That was Howard Lincoln's PA. Lovely woman, um, very polite. And she said, oh, I said, can I speak to Howard? Oh, he's just gone that way. <laughs> Next phone call. Oh, he's just gone that way. I can't, oh, he's just left the office. Well, anyway, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to phone up again at, um, say, 4 o'clock in the morning when they're not going to expect the phone call from me. And I blocked the number. And I phoned up, and guess who answered? Howard Lincoln. Yeah. I said, hello, Mr. Lincoln. This is Richard Kay, company called Software Creations. He just started laughing. He said, he said by God, you said you don't give up, do you? I said, no, and I'm not going to. I'm going to continue phoning you until I have an opportunity. And so he said, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I told him what we're doing. So he turned around and said, okay, Richard, put your money, your money where your mouth is. You work out how the machine works and we'll give you the information on the machine. In other words, get stuffed. Wow, so there was no because offer of a dev kit or anything like that. It was, no, here's no, a closed nothing, system, no. figure it out. But you've got to, <laughs> you, he said, if you, so he, the only thing he was giving me there was the rights to break into their hardware because it's their proprietary hardware. You know, they could sue you, 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 you know, infringing copyright. You can't start taking the top of the thing, breaking into the software. And, and, and as it happened at the time, by, again, strange coincidence, Mike Webb, who I'd worked with at Ocean Software, 
um, was in his own in his spare time was reverse engineering the NES. I mean, the coincidence. I just happened to phone him because I knew he was because Mike was an um, electronics engineer for a company called Long and Crawford. He used to design the high voltage switch gear for a company called Long and Crawford. I think they're still around. Um, so it's basically when you you know it's basically switch gear is it's not like you know when you turn your light on and it sparks. Yeah, a blue spark. It arcs. Well, he was doing the bigger versions of those. You can't just turn a power station off or a substation. It will blow up. Um, so he designed those. So that's where his electronics background came from. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll contact him because he did all the dev kits for Ocean, you know, with the, the Commodore 64 dev kits. Uh, right. So he had quite an intimate knowledge then of dev kits. Yeah. Yeah. So I contacted him and said, look, Mike, this is what I want. You know, I've got the opportunity here of, of working with Nintendo. And he said, well, it's funny that I'm halfway through peeking and poking the Nintendo. And I've got, he was, I think he was doing a, oh, it was like a submarine game where you, I can't remember the name of the game, where you, you, you know, there's a ship, battle battleships with sinking submarines. And he'd okay. managed to poke around someone's software, worked out after poking around, making things move and worked out, well, that's what the sprite memory does. That's where the script. So we set off, we said, okay, Mike, I've got software creations. You know, how about 50-50 in this new company called Software Creations uh, ROM Developments or Software Creations ROM Developments, I think we named it. I said, if we can get this deal, you've got half the company. Um, I'll keep what I've got going on us on one side, the the 8-bit stuff, 16-bit stuff. We'll keep that on one side. Um, let's go into business on this. So, you know, I literally went around to his house for six months just to keep prodding him to do it. Anyway, roll on. So that it was probably about eight months of messing about with this thing because we both had jobs that we were doing. Um, I eventually wrote a demo, and the demo was it was just four springs with four bouncy balls. That was it on on the Nintendo. Nice graphics, bouncy balls. Um, use the B Micro to connect to the Nintendo. And the development kit that Mike built was about, I don't know, seven, eight inches wide, and it had a power supply, and you unplugged the ROM, because it was actually RAM emulating the ROM, and you plugged it into the console. And then so you wrote it on this board and then plugged it in. And it was all very dead. Your hair used to, I'm not joking, there was a power supply here, and your hair used to move on your hand because it was a bloody great big power supply. I mean, it was dangerous work. Um, health and safety now, you wouldn't get that passed. So I phoned Howard again. Uh, it was just before, this was 19, let me think the date, 1987. Um, it was about two months before Thanksgiving. And I phoned Howard and I said, okay, Howard, done what you said, got a demo, um, faxed him from, through some screenshots, I said, I've got a demo. I'm going to be in Seattle next week. Well, there was part of that was a lie. Wasn't going to be in Seattle next week. Didn't have a passport. Didn't have a suit. And when I was on the phone, when Mike looked at me as if to say, I haven't got a suit either, nor have I got a passport. So Howard said, fine, I'll see you here. It was like a week on Monday, um, at which point we panicked. Didn't have the money for the flight. Didn't have the passport. And didn't have a suit. So we had to get those three things in place. And this is absolute truth. And um, we, we trotted off to, I think it was Liverpool in those days. We trotted off to Liverpool and just sat outside and got the passport, uh, got an ill-fitting suit and um, managed to borrow a £1,000 from my father for the flights. And we had to do it over a week. If you get, you know, those week flights, weekend to weekend, it's cheaper. And right. um, so we, we booked our hotel in, in Bellevue, Redmond, and, um, you know, we turned up at Nintendo, a guy called Wayne Shirk, who unfortunately has passed away now, lovely guy. And he was sort of their tech lead at the time. 
and we sat with him, showed him the demo. And we also had the part Solstice demo written as well, which yeah. was just a, um, I've got some screenshots of that somewhere. So we took that in because they said, well, that's not possible on the Nintendo. That was, that was it as well. We said, we are doing sort of a night law type product product on your machine. And they said, and the, and the guys in, in Kyoto said, that's not actually technically possible. And Mike said, funny that, because I've actually got it working with the 3D. They said, it's not possible to do that. And Mike said, well, I've done it. So with those two pieces of information, the demo and the Solstice pre-demo, and it wasn't even called Solstice then, we trotted off to Nintendo. And I remember we walked and we were absolutely petrified. And so we go into the, the boardroom at Nintendo. The table is that long, the perspective. The, the t- I'm not sure, it must be a 40-seater. So I remember it well. Mike's sitting next to me with his half mass suit, and I'm with my half mass suit. Um, Howard Lincoln's at the end, and uh, Mr. Miyamoto, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, was sitting on the other side of the table. Didn't he wasn't saying he wasn't saying a word. Of course, as you can see, I can talk for Britain. Uh, Mike didn't say a word. I'm just going through what we're doing, and Howard just looked. Well, Howard halfway through said, "I know you're only a team of 15." I know you don't have the finances to do this. God knows how he knew. Um, uh, he was a court martial um, lawyer in the Navy, so maybe he had his contacts, but he knew pretty much what we had in the bank. It was very, very scary stuff. They'd done their research. Mm. He looks over to um, uh, Mr. Miyamoto. Miyamoto just does one of these, just nods. Howard looks back at me. And we, I'm looking at Mike here thinking, are we going to be sued here? Because we've broken into their hardware. All right, they gave us the the right to do that verbally and Howard just turned around to me and he said we know you're a small company we know this is a massive risk for you and we are willing to work with people who are willing to take the kind of risk you have taken wow his next work so he said your next his next statement was well because this was just before so this was November his next statement was I'll see you in Vegas at the CES show great another thousand pound I've got to find and another flight so <laughs> and have we, a game we got ready. back home yeah. oh, I mean we didn't have much money that we really were living from check to check yeah, so off I yeah. trotted to you know we, we got the flights booked and it was a funny moment actually in Vegas we got what it, they don't give you a, a contract to develop what they give you is a non-disclosure agreement um in fact I've got one uh, I've got one upstairs actually an, an NDA um when i start again but so you've got this non-disclosure agreement it's only about six pages long and we remember mike and i were sitting at the table in the hotel room and we were going through page three just critiquing it and i just looked at mike mike looked to me it was one of those and we just said what are we doing <laughs> this is nintendo i ain't going to argue about a single clause in this if it says it can have my firstborn uh, and it owns me for the rest of my life we're signing this we're signing so it, we yeah. just closed it i went to, actually i just went to the back page just signed it. I didn't bother. I still to this day don't know what was in there, apart from it was in the first three or five pages. So we trotted back to Nintendo. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, Nintendo had a reputation, of course, for being fierce with the lawyers. So it was a hell of a risk that you took to reverse engineer the system in the first place. I know you had the phone call and you kind of took that as permission, but <laughs> it wouldn't have held up, surely, if, if they came after you and you said, well, the guy on the phone said I could do it. You would have been in some serious yeah. trouble. Yeah, good good luck with that noise. Going to being taken to court in America by Nintendo with my <laughs> exactly. with my ill fitting suit and my um, enterprise allowance scheme of forty pound a week. I'm sure I could afford them. So yeah, uh, yeah. but the, but the reward came. You know, the risk was worth it. And you you find yourself at CES in Las Vegas, and and what are you presenting there? Then what what game have you got to show off? 
Well, we weren't at that stage. We'd had it. We did a bit more of the demo for uh, for the Solstice game. Yeah. And um, what they what they did was they really handheld us through the process of getting projects, and they introduced us to all of the third party publishers. You know, like Trade West, Acclaim, um, LJN, um, lots of different. LJN actually got acquired by Acclaim eventually, but there was a, there were about four or five companies. Um, you know, Trade West. There was about four or five, and then they introduced us. Yeah, you know, actually introduced us there. Took us, I mean, Howard walked around with me and said, "Look, I want you to look after." I mean, we were, you know, wet behind the ears. I was only twenty-three, and Howard really took me under his wing, uh, an absolute gentleman. And um, it used to annoy Mike actually every time we used to go to the shows. Howard, we'd have the meetings. It used to annoy Mike, and he'll tell you, he'll back me up on this. He said, "Why do you talk absolute drivel every time you see Howard? Why don't you ever talk business?" I said, "I'll tell you why." He said, because every man and his dog wants a piece of Howard. Sure. He's back-to-back meetings for four days. So do you know what? I'm going to talk about his son, and we had a mutual interest in fishing. And I used to talk about that. And I said, we've just wasted an hour. I said, no, we haven't. I said, because at some point in the future, when I do need something from them, which did happen, um, he will listen. Because if I am asking him for something, he knows I'm being serious. So we used to get an hour with him just talking absolute tripe. And it was, he used to say to me, you know, I, I like these meetings because I don't have to think it, it's my hour off. Uh, but it used to annoy Mike, but I, it was done on purpose, you know, because yeah, this guy's yeah. just been pulled all over the place. And so we had a great relationship with Nintendo. And, and Howard used to say, why don't you do work for Sega? I said, because you gave me the opportunity. You know, my allegiance is with you. Uh, yes, I could do what, you know, Fergus does and what Jez Sand did and they're doing work for every man and his dog and they did it very well and they still got deals with Nintendo, but that's, you know, I stuck with Nintendo and it, and it paid off because, um, you know, they gave us some great work. Um, there was an issue with us not getting on the Dream Team, which we did because of, that was the one time I contacted Howard and said, why aren't we on the Dream Team? And there was some politics going on. Mm-hmm. Um for anyone who hasn't seen Solstice, it's, it's an isometric game, a, a very good-looking isometric game where you've worked out how to hide the characters behind the blocks with the isometric layout, which obviously they thought wasn't possible. You've got the great Tim Follin music as well. Um, it's a great-looking game. There's also, uh, I don't know if you've seen on YouTube, there's a, a rip of a VHS of the making of Solstice. and Ah, uh, uh, yes. You're a lot it's more on natural camera. You're a lot more natural on camera now than you were on that video. It's, oh, it's a little it was bit horrendous. stiff. <laughs> oh, my God. I have to say, the re- I don't know if you've seen any of the message under that, but I have to say, we just had, because that was, we'd sold Solstice to Nintendo of America. Right. And CSG, which stands right. for CBS Sony Group, picked it up for the US. And so it did very well for them. And they want, and it, it actually won the first outside of Japan, the first industry award for design and technology. So that's what we were going over for to be presented with that. Um, So it actually won the award for, I've got a picture of it somewhere. I think Mike's may still have it. And so we were flying over and they wanted to do this video, the making of Solstice. So of course, again, we didn't really have, you know, massive money. So we did the long trip around the world to get to to, uh, Tokyo. And we just got off a probably an 18 hour, maybe coming up to 24 hour trip. We were exhausted. We couldn't think straight. So that is a, that literally is the image of us straight off the plane from the airport, picked up by Sony and into their offices. But it was hilarious. The, it they actually cut it out. There's a, oh, there's a moment in there where we realized not one of the people doing the interview understood a word of English. 
Oh, wow. And it was okay. one of those moments. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. So, Mike, so Tim just looked at me and I looked at Tim. You know, it's one of those moments where you just can't stop laughing. I mean, they cut it out. Tim and I, because we started talking gibberish anyway. Okay. We started okay. talking <laughs> in some weird alien language. I think it might have been the, you know, the, I don't know what language it was, but Tim and I started doing it talking in some made-up language and we just fell about laughing um so it, it was it was a it was a very funny moment and um so i think what you're seeing there is a we're very tired and b we're in between just fits of laughter and oh. and, and what you know oh, it was we need hilarious. to see the outtakes Absolutely. i need to watch it again now with that with that knowledge so i can see <laughs> if i can see any signs of the laughter any tears in your eyes but um well the other game as well the other thing is all you can do with that video is is um, I mean, you need to put a like a you know that they do where somebody says something or something happens and a, ti a, a timer goes up at the side or a counter. Listen to how many times Mr. Webb says so that so that okay. so that is brilliant. <laughs> well, I mean, this relationship was working really well for you with Nintendo. So you were one of the first UK companies to actually develop for the NES um, outside of Japan uh, as a result of this effort. And I think you might have also been the first company outside of J Japan to develop for the Super Nintendo. Is that is that right? Yeah, we were. That how that happened was at the time when we went to see Sony, and we went to see their um, their guys in white coats, the ones that in, the, in their technology place. And it really is hundreds of you know beaker off Sesame Street. It's hundreds of those okay. little beakers <laughs> running around, you know, blowing things up. And you'd walk in a room and there'd be a puff of smoke because they've just blown something up it really it, i'm not exaggerating you know and we saw the first hd tv back in this was 1990 the making of solstice so um so at that time nintendo and sony because the super NES hadn't come out at that point and we were going to do equinox well, that was the follow-on from solstice and at that time the if, if you recall the sound chip for the super NES was made by sony Mm -hmm. And Sony always, were always making noises about going into partnership with Nintendo, doing a sort of CD-based platform. Nintendo refused point blank, blank and said, we will never do this base. It's always going to be cartridge because of the, you know, the copyright and, and not copyright, the counterfeit. Um, and that's how Sony, I was in the meeting when they were talking about it, that's how Sony got into doing their own console because Nintendo didn't want to do the, um, the console with them. And Sony went off and did their own. In fact, I was part of the team that put together, uh, part, our, our team and myself were, were part of the team that put together the specification for the original Sony PlayStation. And I've still got that somewhere. It's got like a disc on the front. It's about 30 pages thick because they wanted to develop a machine that for developers, de designed by developers. Mm. Um, that's why it was such a good machine. Um, so Sony went off. I mean, the rest is history. Sony went off. And I know, you know, from the horse's mouth that... Um, Nintendo regretted that decision because yeah. it really did put them on the back foot for quite some time. Um, because there was the really Sony Nintendo their... prototype of the the, the disc-based system. Did you ever see see that while you were at Nintendo before they set, parted ways and the Sony made the PlayStation on their own? Well, the reason, well, sorry, because I've kind of skipped to the to their machine. So the Super mm. NES was um, the Super NES was their sound chip, and they were also building they were they were building the dev kits for it. We were the first, so I actually got Sony in trouble because I didn't know. So Sony said, look, we'll send you some of these dev kits, start getting work on, we want you to bring out the first game on the Super NES. Mm -hmm. Here are the dev kits. And I'm not joking, they, they would fill, I mean, they were massive. The dev kits were huge, massive, great big Unix machines. They were massive. I remember it turned up on four pallets. 
you know, wow. the, there was a graphic side and the music side. It was huge. And um, there's a funny story with that as well, which, which involved Mike Webb. It was absolutely, and in fact, people out there, Tony Pomfret remembers it. Oh, I'll go on to that in a minute. Okay. Um, so they sent us the kits. I didn't know that Nintendo didn't even have one themselves. I, I, why would Sony send me a dev kit and not send them? So I was chatting away to, to Wayne Shirk and said, oh, the new Super NES dev kits from Sony are fantastic. He's like, you what? This is Nintendo themselves. So I didn't know. They never said to me, don't tell anyone. Why would I assume they're doing that behind the back? So we had we had the first Super NES dev kits in the world. So anyway, so the two, two white-coated um, beakers turned up at the office to install these Super NES dev kits. And in the truck, couldn't speak a word of English. And they were um, NTSC. So they're American systems, 110. And I remember, Mike, so we had these, bearing in mind, these kits are handmade and take three to six months to make. These aren't something you can go and buy from, from Dixon's. You know, yeah, it's not something yeah. you can get from Nintendo. They are one-offs. And we had the first prototype of that. So anyway, I remember, because I was standing there, and these two beakers are with the clipboards, and Mike's plugging everything in. And he said, oh, I just need to plug it into a monitor. What he'd forgotten was, because we had these, 240 to 110 volt converters in order for this equipment to work. Anyway, Mike's got a monitor on the other end of the desk. You know what I'm going to say now? I know where this and is he going. Plugs this, <laughs> yeah, he plugs this, and the whole system's connected. It's all connected together. He plugs in this, the, the, the video connector, how it was connected in those days, into this monitor. I mean, it sounded like the um, a bomb going off. <laughs> There was smoke you couldn't see in the room. It was full of... I mean, the noise of this thing exploding, I, I can't tell you. What was the reaction of the, the, the white coats? What was, were they there? What oh, was the reaction? Well, the white coats <laughs> went white. Um, and this thing, just, this thing went bang. The top of the thing actually came off. Oh, I mean, because, wow. you know, you, this oh, thing yeah. went... You, know, you, you put in 240 volts down a probably a 110 line because it earthed it immediately. And this, and, and this is an interesting part of the story. It, it proves how good Mike Webb was. These two guys are looking at each other, almost crying. So Mike takes off the top of this machine that's gone bang. Now, normally when a computer is fried and looks like toast, it's, you put it in the bin. Now, the top of the, it was the video chip. The top of the video chip was probably about this big square, and it had a hole in it, and you could actually see the, uh, the, the, the surface of the chip. Now, luckily, we were next door to Maplin's. And we were thinking, Mike, what are you doing? You know, this is a... So Mike asked for these two very frail-looking beakers. Could you get me the schematic for the video chip for this? Now, you're talking a video chip for a new console. So Mike gets the schematic, and he stays up all night, and he's working it all out. Mike builds a video chip from the parts from Maplin's. So just like a wire breadboard. Oh yeah, it was just a, a breadboard, wire sticking out of it, lots of chips. Looked at the schema and built in three days this video chip, and and he just wires it up to this thing and got it working again. Well, you can imagine how what Sony thought when he did that, because you know these video That's chips were yeah. there weren't many of them around, and they couldn't you know they were they were surface soldered. You couldn't just take them out. They weren't you know we didn't have sockets to plug them in. So we got that back up and running. Um, and uh, you know, so so that was that was that story. But Nintendo, they weren't unhappy with us. It just got us into very 
hot deep water with Sony. And, and they didn't, as I said, well, you didn't tell me. I, I didn't think you wouldn't be telling Nintendo. And uh, we started working on Equinox and we started work. We did some of the, you know, we did a few games on the Super NES. And, um, but the, the big mistake we made, which we didn't realize, was the going from, you remember going from BBC Marco as a one man team, it was you. Then you went to the, 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 the NES and the 16 bit machines. Uh, sorry, the 8-bit the machines, the NES 8-bit and the Game Boy. And um, you still only needed two-man teams, artist, programmer, musician off to the side. Um, the transition from going from 8 to 16, all right, it wasn't as big as 16 to, to the 64-bit, was massive. We still had the same teams. We just thought it was just better graphics, but it's not. You know, the depth of gameplay, the amount of graphics that you needed... And we were very late on a lot of projects, including Equinox, which took us two years longer than it should have done. And our relationship with, with Sony uh, went a bit sour. Now, as you know, with Japanese companies, they don't sue you. They just don't call you again. They're not litigious. Um, I mean, I can sum up in English publishers want twice as much, want to pay half as much. The Americans want twice as much, very litigious, but pay you four times as much. And the Japanese, they will pay you quite a lot um, but if you mess them about, they'll just give you an office with no windows. That's how it works. They don't like sure. to sue. They don't like to fall out. You, they just stop calling us. And um, I was in the running for the launch of the PlayStation. It was either Cygnosis um, in Hetherington or myself. But Ian had more of a commercial retail background, and they were publishers. So it naturally fitted with what he was doing. And, he, and the, you know, Cygnosis did a fantastic job launching that. Um, I think they were they were instrumental in, in, in launching the, the PlayStation in Europe. Um, so I couldn't have taken it on anyway, even if they were talking to us, but we never got any more projects with us. We never heard from them again because um, Equinox took too long because we didn't realise how, how, much, how much time it was going to take. Um, so we went from two-man teams to eight-man teams. Already the risk is starting to build. You know, from doing 30, 40 games a, day, a year, you're now down to 20 games a year. And the risk profile started to build. So I could see the way the industry is going. Um, you're having to spend a lot more money. Salaries are getting higher. The litigation risks were getting massive. Um, you know, the cartridges on, the, on these, you know, if you messed up, I mean, my lawyer said to me, you're getting paid $150,000, but your potential litigation is $10 million. Um, because if they produce, it's not like a disc or a tape where you can remaster it. It's hardware. If somebody's just manufactured a hundred thousand units at twenty dollars a piece, and there's a bug in it, you're going to be in trouble. So we actually set up a separate company for every one of our publishers. We and they said it was a bit suspicious. I said, "Well, I'm protecting you from them and and, and you from us." I said, "I'm, I'm not hiding anything here." And they they realised uh, why we were doing all of this because mm. we didn't want that bit of litigation to bring your game down, and they they accepted that. Um, the, the releases kept coming then so you had get a lot of games on the game boy that you produced so you were making attempts to spread the risk across other platforms still and you did also produce yeah. some games for the sega mega drive or did you outsource those yeah. and yeah you, you no we did them? we did all everything was done in house we didn't outsource anything and also we didn't use middleware there was some middleware out there we we didn't use everything that we had was proprietary from the animation through to the music to the to the map designers and in fact, I was the first person in the industry, because you remember Cosgrove Hall, Danger Mouse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chaunton yeah. and the Wheelies. Um, they lost their license to produce 
I, I don't know whether I think it was Thames TV they lost the license or something happened and there were all these animators going free and again like the music I didn't want the animation to you know just be these rotating legs I wanted I really wanted to take the animation to the next level and we brought in we took on about six to eight animators from Cosgrove Hall it was very slow at first it was very costly but then our animation just far exceeded everyone else's and it, it put us on the map again for pushing the boundaries and it got us noticed uh, and um, you know some of those people are still in the industry and mm. uh, and it was also refreshing to have a different perspective on graphics in the, in the business as well rather than just your, your straightforward pixel artists that have come from the you know the set the zx81 spectrum b micro commodore 64 um they tend to get a bit tunneled and this gave people a different perspective so i started breaking our graphics down into you know the background artists into your animators the people that actually did the you know the people that did the skinning on the animation so i started to break that down into smaller pieces and it made a massive difference it was a huge investment for us um but then you know off the back of that we got ken griffey baseball and the animation was done by proper animators um, and one of the things nintendo taught me was always over um egg the, the pro always over make the product more technical than it should be um because then if you bring out a baseball game and somebody wants to copy you if you've done something special in there it's going to take somebody six to 12 months to catch up to you and the example in baseball if you look at ken griffey baseball and every single player's jersey has got the team name mm-hmm so that had never been done before. It might not seem like a lot. So that was our over-egging the project. And uh, in fact, there was a chap called Andrew Threlfall who's no longer with us. He was actually, he was the fourth person I employed and he was also from St. Helens and um, he's no longer with us. A lovely, lovely guy. Um, we used to call him Threlbot actually because he used to walk in a straight line. In fact, you could draw a plumb line with his head and put a pencil on it. We used to call him Threlbot. Um, and people who work with me remember Threlbot because he was just a machine. He would just churn through the graphics. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, we, we had uh, him doing the names on the shirts and it took him 12 months. And you, can you imagine when Nintendo came back and said, oh, we want to change the animation for that. And he was just oh, head wow. in hands job. And he nearly, had a ner he nearly had a nervous breakdown doing that because if they changed the animation or changed the colours, he had to redo them all again. Um, and that was his job for 12 months. But that allowed us, there were no other games which had the team names on the back yeah. and the front. Using of all the different animation positions, all the different teams we had in there, it was, uh, but they're, they're the kind of things you had to do. But the animators paid off. Worth it to get the player invested in, in playing their own team, their favourite team. Um, I think it makes yeah. a big difference, yeah. Do, do you think that your relationship with Nintendo um, as a British developer, do you think it helped them to become more accepting of British developers, or did you set the bar to make it harder for British developers to get in and working with oh, Nintendo? Yeah. Actually, going back a bit to um, your point earlier, where we were one of the first um, developers in outside of Japan, actually, never mind the US, outside of Japan, there was Rare, Tim and Chris, who I know very well, the Stamper Brothers. Um, Tim and Chris were about three months ahead of us. And in fact, we did our first NES title, believe it or not was directly with them. I think what they were trying to do was slow us down, looking back now, and we did World Games for them on the NES. That was our first um, ever product, and they got really, really nasty with us. I'm happy to say it. They're not saying anything out of turn, and they really put the, the, the pressure on us. And I think deep down they may have wanted us to, to disappear. 
Um, but we managed to, to to actually get the game finished. Mike and I wrote that, um, and Mark Wilson did the animation. I mean, I don't know what's happened to Mark Wilson. He did the graphics for Solstice. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. Great, he was a great artist, one of the first six um, of the team. Yes, but in terms of, yeah, it did set. We did set the bar very high. And I had Ian Stewart from Gremlin Graphics asking me for the development kit because we built the dev kits ourselves. They weren't given to us by. You could buy them from Nintendo, but Mike Webb built our own. We had all our own dev kits. Um, so we didn't. At those times, Nintendo didn't didn't supply you with dev kits. They weren't. There wasn't such a thing. The NES, the NES didn't have dev kits. Um, uh, the Game Boy did. The Game Boy have a dev kit? Yes, it did. But the original NES didn't. So the fact where you'd actually built a dev kit as well. So there was no one else in the UK that had dev kits. Rare had their own because um, Chris Stamper's an electronics guy as well. His background was arcades. Um, so you can see the companies that actually made it in the beginning actually had the, the, the technology available to them, the electronics and the programming. You can see why they've done well. And they had a very similar setup. And they were, you remember, Rare, we didn't, even, we didn't even know who they were. Nobody knew who Rare, uh, was it um, Rare, not Rare Coin, what were they called, the original, before oh, they became Rare? ultimate play of the game nobody knew who they were and when i was at ocean i used to see the father delivering the games you know to, to ocean because they were a distributor so to be invited up there to see them and for us it, it, they were like gods because we didn't even know who these we didn't even know their names um and ashby de la Zouch, that was it we went up there it's got a famous zoo and uh, and even back in 19 what year was it's been in even 1987 88 the setup they had was just outstanding and, uh, you know, Tim is a superb artist. And on the wall in their main boardroom, he had all this spray. He was a great at airbrushing. I remember there was a, two glasses of scotch and a bottle of scotch. And I said, oh, that, why you got a picture? He said, it's not a picture, it's airbrushed. It's a brilliant artist. So they had that combination as well. Um, and they had a guy called Joel Hotberg who was there, the, the guy behind them. And I, we hit it off very well, but I think they gave us that project so we would fail, but we didn't. Um, and we never did any work for them again. But we, we remain good friends, you know. I've not spoken to them for a while. Um, but, you know, I knew Tim and Chris very, very well. So we, so we both of us did. So answering your question, we did set the bar. Um, but then other companies, I think it got a bit more relaxed because we couldn't do... I think what it, it showed to Nintendo was that, you know, hold on a minute, there's some very good talent in the UK, and there was. There's some of the best game developers, designers came out of the UK. Um, and uh, I think it set the bar... And then more people approached Nintendo. So we probably broke the ice, to be honest. In in December, we're heading heading forward now to 1994. It was in December 94 that the company was listed on the stock exchange, I believe. And um, B BCE Holdings acquired Software Creations along with Rage Games. And BCE Multimedia was created, although you continue to produce games using your own branding, I mean, to the, the consumer recognition, I guess. So um, you now find yourself as joint managing director along with Paul Finnegan, I think it was, of yeah. Rage. So, you know, you're a size, you must have been a really sizable company now. How many people are we talking about under your, under your management, your joint management here? Well, going back, to, I'll answer your question in December, going back to the BC, because BC is Bristol Coin Enterprises and they make snooker tables and snooker balls and you can still see them now on players things and it was bc that acquired both rage and software creations um rage didn't actually acquire us that rage at that time were quite a new startup it was paul finnegan and joffa smith uh they had a small development group uh, paul wanted to grow it 
and um, and then he had us, and then he wanted to name it. They thought BCE sounds like Mad Cows. We need to really change the name of it. So um, they named it. We, we all agreed to name it Rage Software PLC. So that's how the Rage thing name came about. Um, it was rather. I mean, Paul. You got it going back a bit. I actually worked for Paul at Ocean Software. He was their um, sales manager. So right. it was a bit of a okay. strange. You know, what comes around goes around. Um, so it's a bit of, it was a bit of a strange thing. And having joined MDs was never going to work, not right. in a million years. Not when you've got two, but you can't, you can't have two uh, captains sailing a ship. Even if, it, you know, you, you only have to be one degree out. It's, you know, you, it's going to split at some point. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it would have been better off having no captains and just let the thing float off. But um, so it, it got to the point where, we were at, we were 110 people strong. I'd already set up an office in Seattle. We had um, Creation Seattle at the time that was prior to being acquired. Because um, you've got to remember at that time, um, Microsoft didn't have a console. They were doing a few educational games. And believe it or not, there was no one in Seattle um, developing games. So I right. saw an opportunity. I thought, why don't I send some of my people over to uh, Seattle, set up an office there, service Nintendo, get closer to them. We've got, you know, the satellite office there. We've now got an office. We've also got an office in Manchester. In effect, you've got 24 hours development, which made a lot of sense. Servicing Nintendo, Microsoft were making noises about setting this games thing. I had a very good relationship with Microsoft and it made a lot of sense. And in hindsight, I should have just sold the UK side and keep kept the in, in knowing what we know now about Microsoft, I should have kept the game side there. Probably would have been a second acquisition. Um, and we were doing, we, we were 110 strong. I was flying backwards and forwards all the time. Uh, it was near, near the fish market, actually. It was it was great. You could see the fish market. Um, sleepless in Seattle, you can actually see that. I think you can actually see our office building. Um, and it was great because it's, you know, it's on the same latitude as Manchester. So it rained just as much. They just have better coffee houses. A little bit less violence uh, and it was great that was a great time as well and i was still running that once we'd been acquired but the problem you've got with um with a business like that i ran the business it was i ran the business based on a very very rarely did cash flows i hate although i'm a numbers person i hate i hate projections i hate cash flows i just want to know what's coming in what's going out and can we meet the bills and that used to drive me to go off to the states to get more contracts sit down with the accountant once a month. How are things looking going forward? I don't want to say how you've worked out. I just want a, does the computer say, yes, we can pay the bills or no? If it's no, or it's getting into a, in between the two, I'll get on a plane next week and I'll go and see a claim. I'll go and see Nintendo and I'll come back with 10 new projects. And that's how it worked. So that's what drove me. The problem is when you're acquired, you're no longer doing the finances, which is a bonus, but you've now got not got the thing that's driving you. You're not as close to what's going on as you were previously. Um, and it, it lost for me what it was all about. And I mean, I, mean, I sold the company for good reason. The, the risk, pro we were you know, now doing 64-bit games. We were probably only doing maybe two to three games a year. The games were now costing 10 million pound. You had an EA playing, you know, silly buggers with us and pulling contracts at the you know, after the third milestone, because things weren't going well for them, they're now going to pull it from you, blaming you that it's your fault when you've met the milestone. So, you know, there were, it was, things were starting to get a little bit difficult. 
um, which is the reason why I sold it. I could see it was getting to the top of its um, thing. It needed more money. I couldn't provide the, the funding that was required and the stability. And uh, I wanted to take it forward. But within about 18 months, I just lost my drive. And, right. you know, I was, okay. on a, I was on a bloody, I was on a really good salary even back in 1994, you know, more than I've earned since. But mm. I, I couldn't do it anymore. And it, I, the only way I can explain it is, you know, when you're waiting, well, you're waiting to go into the exam room or you're waiting for the exam result, that foreboding, that impending doom. And that's how I felt every morning, whether it was panic attacks, I don't know. But I just felt like everything was, cl- I couldn't go in. I couldn't face it anymore. And um, that's when I decided, A, to sell. And then it, that, that actually didn't get any better once I'd, I'd acquired it. I thought, well, once I've got this money and I'll be happy, but it doesn't solve a problem. You can't solve your mental state just by having cash in the bank. And it just made things worse. And, and, and I just turned around to the CEO and uh, or the chief exec and I said, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, I promise I won't do anything in games. I'll help you if you want me to help you. Um, but I need to go and do something different. I said, because you're just paying me a massive salary and I'm just taking your money and I'm not doing anything for it. And you had the issue with the joint MD. That wasn't working very well at all. Um, so there were problems there politically. Yeah. So when, when what year are we talking here? When did you step down then? Uh, I remember it exactly. I remember the meeting with um, the, the chairman it was March 1996. Yeah. So had you gone into the Nintendo 64 era then of game development? Had you got on board with that before you stepped down or was that after? We were just getting onto that, but we, there was some politics at Nintendo. I won't mention any names. And I suddenly found out the Jezzes of this world and the Ferguses of this world have landed themselves as part of the Nintendo 64 dream team. I said, are you kidding me? Now these people were never that loyal to you. They were doing stuff for Sega We've done all this work. We've given you, you know, six years of our time dedicated. Yes, we've done very well to have it. It wasn't one-way street. Um, so I phoned Howard and I said, you know, Howard, why aren't we on the Nintendo 64 Dream Team program? You know, you've, you've, we've always gone out of our way. We've, you've just done Ken Griffey Junior Baseball, which did, I think it was over a million units, which our team did very well out of. Um, so we've always made you money. And he said, well, we always make decisions of what are best for Nintendo. I said, well, it's funny that, and this is how I'm talking, I said, it's funny that because that's what we've always done. We've always made decisions based on what's best for us, and we've that, we've that decision with yours. And then I had to tell him, which got this person in trouble, the reason why we weren't on the Dream Team, because this certain individual wanted to come and work with me. But because of my loyalties to Nintendo, I didn't want to take him on. Talk about irony. So because I didn't want to take this person on because I didn't want to do it behind Nintendo's back, it actually backfired. And I told him this. Anyway, the next day I get into the office and Howard said, well, I didn't know that. He said, leave it with me. So I walk into the office next day and there's a piece of paper on my on the fax machine just come out saying, we, we would like to congratulate Software Creations for being invited on the to the Dream Team uh, to do the music tools and some animation um, programs for, I think it was Mario Paint that it was called in the end. I don't think it ever came out, but it was. we were working with uh, Miyamoto on that one. Um, Shigeru Miyamoto, that was fantastic working with him. So we got on the program and he, and he phoned me, he didn't put it in the facts and apologised. So that's how that's how we got onto the Nintendo 64. Um, and we'd already been acquired, so it was quite a big deal and I thought we'd get on it. 
So it was part of the deal acquisition that we would get on that. So that was the one time that I needed Howard where I wasn't talking about fishing and his son and the world and everything else. And I said to Mike, there you go. The one time in the relationship I needed him, he listened and we got it. So it, all that waffling paid on. Yeah, yeah. He knew when you needed him, he, he knew you were serious. And and as you said, uh, you were put on, I think, Mario Artist Paint Studio, I think was the one you were talking about there, which is, you know, it's a Mario game. So they, they've trusted you enough to put you on their, um, you know, on a Mario game. That's, that's got to be high praise. Well, you know. Correct. Really and well it was a, it was a beautiful project. I don't know if it ever came out. Actually, I'm not sure whether they ever brought the thing out. Um, it but it was listed. a beautiful when, game. When I've looked up credits for games by Software Creations, it is listed as a game um, that was released. So I'm I'm not sure. I'll have to double check that. We'll we'll put a caption on the screen to confirm that. Um, and also, just speaking of game credits, there is one anomaly, and I don't know if you were still there at this point. It was in 1996. Um, Mortal Kombat 3 for the Sega Master System in 1996 i'd already left i'd already you'd already left. left i was gonna say what, what a master system games being done made in 96 it seems well no, I, too late i think that happened um mid to late 96 and i left probably eight as soon as i told them I wanted to leave they didn't want me around i mean it really right. was carting you out of the box it was very unceremoniously told to leave the office um but uh i didn't care at that point but um, I did care. I cared about the company. I just, you know, I was so numb. Um, and unfortunately, after I left, it was driven into the ground by whoever um, because I don't think people realised, I didn't realise the influence I had on the business. So, you know, people used to th must have thought I was sitting there like Scrooge counting the money. But I'd get home at midnight and I'd be working till four because my clients were American. Um, so uh, I spent most of my day chatting to the team and making sure they were okay, you know, and... and uh, just making sure the business was running. And um, I, people have said to me, the moment you left is the moment that place went downhill, which was nice. I still hear from a massive percentage of the people there now. And um, a lot of them went on to run their own businesses and didn't realise how hard it was. Because it is hard work. A, running a business and B, running a games company. You try dealing with 110 creatives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Include in, I include myself in one of that. We're all difficult people. Yeah. And we're difficult about because we care. Yeah, and you talked about your mental health and your anxiety in the lead up to to that um, decision. Did that quickly get improved for you Did, after you made? Um, that it decision? took me a long time because obviously, you know, I had the I've been working so hard for eight years. It took me a long time to get back on my feet mentally. And in those days, people didn't talk about it. I'm quite happy to talk about it. In those, you know, you know, I'd be shaking and shivering and crying and not knowing what, and just out of the blue. And he was even this was afterwards. Um, call it PTSD, I don't know, but it, the after effects lasted for quite a long time. And it took me several years before I got my confidence back to do anything else. Um, so, uh, and also I, I never really found my mojo again because games was what I loved. It's what I enjoyed. I, you know, I, I was often questioning, should I have sold it? Shouldn't I have sold it? Should I have stuck with it? Um, never really got back into games again, apart from one uh, games company that I set up, which failed because I wasn't there. Um, so, you know, I asked myself the question many a time, should I have carried on? Um, I did get an, another contract with Nintendo 10 years after the anniversary after me first going there. Um, this was 2007, was it 2000? Sorry, 1997, November. I, met, I timed the trip to the day, to the afternoon of when I'd been 
and I went to see Howard and uh, Mr. Arakawa, and uh, there were more. They were. I said, look, I'd like another development deal, and they said, yeah, no problem. Called up, you know, legal, got that sent down, and then and then Arakawa just got a map out of Europe and said, where's Jersey? So he was more interested <laughs> in the personal side, and that was a relationship yeah. I had. Um, and Howard yeah. left. I think Arakawa resigned after that, and um, Howard went on to run the Seattle Mariners, I think. Um, but what, what an absolute star. He's probably one of the nicest people I've ever met, considering his position. Um, but he always took me under the wing, loved the fat I waffled all the time like I'm doing now. He enjoyed that. He enjoyed this bumbling, wet behind the ears, didn't really know what I was doing, just you know, fighting my way through it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so for, it took quite, to get back to your original question, it took me quite some time to get over it. And, and also, you know, to see something that you've built with your own hands over the years to disappear. You know, although it wasn't mine anymore, it was like watching your child die. Um, all right, it probably isn't as bad as that, I'm being a bit dramatic, but it, it felt to me a, a massive part of me had died when I heard that uh, creations had gone. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I did offer to take it back, but that was kicked back. Um, so that was interesting because I did want to take it back. So a lot of people said, why did you, you know, when, when it was actually taken back from a, uh, from rage i did offer yeah. to do that many people probably didn't know that um but it was refused um and when they were about to you know, when, when they were about to go belly up i got a phone call saying was i interested i said not now no um so that, so i did want to i did want to rebuild it and is that, that was two years before after. it went went on to become a claim yeah. studios manchester yeah so. it, hmm. yeah it was just because it went um, i think Mike acquired it back from BCE. I don't know the figures. He acquired it back. And at that time I said, well, I'd like to be, you know, I said to him, I'm interested in um, doing this again. He said, well, I'm fair enough. He said, I'd like to try it on my own, which is fair enough. Um, maybe he not realizing how much I actually did. And the thing just, for whatever reason, just fell over. Um, and then I got a phone call two years later, would I, like, would I be interested? There's nothing I'm saying here is out of turn. They were the facts. And I said, Two years ago, yes, not now. And sure. that was that. Sure. So software creations had, had come to an end. I mean, the, the, there's a bit of negative, well, quite a lot of negativity towards the end of the story there. But just looking back, just to give us a positive note to end on, I mean, would you have changed anything? Would you Would you no. do it all again, given the chance? No. No, and I wouldn't change a thing. And people often say, well, you know, would you do this, change that, would you do that? Well, you're always making the decisions on the facts and the world as it is at that time. I mean, I've made some awful decisions since then on different things, but people say, why did you make that decision? Because hindsight gives you 20-20 vision. But at that time, that is what I had in front of me. And I think I made some pretty good decisions. I made some bad ones as well. I don't think I was, and people have said this to me, I don't think I was tough enough. I was scared of saying something to someone in case they left. Um, you know, and, and because you've got to remember in those days, you didn't, you know, it was assembly language. If somebody left halfway through a project, you were screwed. Yeah. You yeah. can't, you can't, you know, this is assembly language. It's, it looks like, it looks like Greek, you know, you can't just pick it up. And even now when I look at my code from those days, I go, what was I doing? What is that? Even when yeah, I look at my code not, that I'm it's writing It's not self-documenting, is it? You can't just sit down no. and read it like basic. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not like C sharp where you can read it and it looks like a language. It's, you know, you're talking yeah. monomics. Uh, so, but, you know, I, I loved it. And, and and I often chat to people, um, you know, like Lorraine, who was one of my project managers. And, you know, I even speak to 
to Mike about it, and we often speak now, and we say we just didn't realise how fantastic and what a what a privilege and an honour to be part of that pioneering time. And I wouldn't change a single thing. I'd love to do it again. I wish I could go back. That's a really nice note to end on there, Richard. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time today and for all the games on behalf of everyone's watching, as well as myself, all of the games that you produced and the, and the joy that you gave us. I'd love to see you at some retro expos. I don't know if you've ever been invited or um, been no, to if any you want recently. To, I, just don't, I think because I'm in Jersey now, people don't know where I am. If somebody wanted me to invite me, that would be great. It would be an honour. And I also want to think I'd like to give it, if it's okay for you, just to give a shout out to all the team players at uh, Creations without without them I just couldn't have done it any names in particular that you'd like to yeah um, Steve yeah Steve Ruddy Kevin Edwards uh, Tim Follin Mike Follin uh, Andrew Threlfall is no longer with us Mike Hager who's with us in the very early days and stuck with it getting paid peanuts Um, we we you know there was a there's a whole list of people but they're the names Steve Ruddy in particular real soft spot for Steve, um, and uh, Andrew Threlfall who's no longer with us, and uh, there's also a chap called and, and a lot of people it's very sad called Martin Holland he lived and breathed games and um, he passed away suddenly, and he was such a lovely guy and people out there who know Martin he was he just it was if you cut Martin in half it just said you know, graphic designer. He was, he was just loved it. And he, he was, we had some great people. We had some great personalities and probably I'd go as far to say as some of the best talent in the UK without any shadow of a doubt. Brilliant. Brilliant. Without them, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Richard. And thank you to everyone for watching today and take care. Bye-bye from me and bye-bye from Richard. Yeah. Stay safe. (laughs) 